morning, everyone. I'm excited to uh, do this series together with you. It's going to be a journey together. And I think it's going to be one of the most challenging, challenging series I've ever done. And I think you're going to find it to be one of the most challenging message series that you've ever listened to. And I want to warn you ahead of time that it's probably going to make some of us feel, I said us, feel very uncomfortable. But the good news is if we are willing to receive that discomfort, I think it's going to just change our lives. It's going to blow our socks off. So make sure you have good socks on, okay? You say, well, that's an interesting way to start a series. I already feel kind of intimidated. Well, that's because we're going to get real with the real Jesus. And I'm especially excited for our, our young adults, our young people who are in here because to me, and obviously to all of us, they are the future. And to see them get serious about God, that would be an awesome radical thing, wouldn't it? Let's give it up for our young adults, all right? Yeah. They, they need all the encouragement that they can receive. I wanna start out though by telling you um, a story that you're all familiar with. C.S. Lewis did the Chronicles of Narnia, and in one of those scenes, Aslan, who is the Christ figure, this very majestic lion, sends this little girl, Lucy, on a mission. And the mission that she goes on is a mission that she has to do in the evening. She has to travel at night. And so while she's traveling at night, she happens to look up, and she sees sitting on the hill Aslan. He's being illuminated by a full moon. And it excites her heart. And she runs up the hill toward Aslan and throws herself on his soft and silky mane. And he kind of rolls over and she ends up kind of caught between his paws. And she looks into his majestic face and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan answers, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy seems a little bit confused by this remark, and she asks, not because you are? And Aslan assures her, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think what C.S. Lewis was trying to teach us in that story is that as we grow in our faith, the object of our faith, Christ, God, will grow bigger. It's not like God can actually grow bigger because he's full grown. <laughs> he is without boundaries, he's without end, he's infinite. But as you and I grow spiritually, what happens is our awareness of him <clears throat> broadens and gets deeper and expands. As I've been thinking about that in my own personal spiritual journey these many years now, two things have happened to me that almost seem opposites. And what I've discovered is that I, as I have grown in my walk with God over the years, on the one hand, I've become more aware of how sinful I am than ever before. In other words, at this stage in my life, in my 60s, I'm far more aware of how sinful I am than when I was in my 50s or 40s or 30s or certainly my 20s and below. 
But on the other hand, what's happened is I am more aware of God's grace and God's love and God's grandeur now than I ever was 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years ago. And that seems to be how God works. That is that the closer we get to him, the more we come into the light of his presence, we realize how unworthy we really are. And on the other hand, we are overcome by his grace and his goodness and his love for us. So the challenge that we face as the followers of Christ is to make sure that we are actually moving into seeing God for who he really is, as Kyle mentioned. And the reason I say that and why that's so important and why I think this series could be kind of upsetting in a good way, I hope, is that I'm afraid that maybe some of us, young and old alike, are following a Jesus who isn't exactly the Jesus of the Scriptures. It's a Jesus that's been more influenced by our own preconceived ideas and a Jesus who's been more influenced by our culture and politics and celebrityism and all the stuff that we face constantly, like it's a steady uh, message coming at us day and night. And it's easy for that to kind of color who Jesus is. And we get a distorted view of Jesus, and then what happens is we're kind of following a distorted Jesus himself. And what we want to do in this series is we want to kind of purge ourselves, so to speak, and kind of start fresh again with who Jesus reveals himself to be. And like I said, I think it might be a little shocking, a little upsetting in a good way. We may have to reorient ourselves as we come to grips with who Christ really is. So I want to welcome you to this journey we're going to do together. We're going to journey toward transformation of our lives. We're going to journey and walk with Jesus to a new and renewed life with him. And I'm excited about all that's going to mean for me. Because I tell you what, I don't want to be the same person three months from now that I am today. I really don't. I, I want things to change. I want, I want to see God in, in a bigger and greater way. How about you? You want to do that too? Or are you just kind of happy with the way you are and the way things are? You know, in all honesty, some people would say, yeah, I don't want to get uncomfortable. Then honestly, this is probably not a good series for you to be in. I can recommend other places to go. But if you like a challenge, if you're willing to wrestle with it, if you're willing to consider it, then this is definitely the place you need to be. So let's get started instead of just talking about it. Let's break open the book of Mark. If you want to use the Pew Bibles, it's page 1523. And uh, <clears throat> in respect for God's word and its authority, let's stand together and let's begin. We're going to read at verse 14. Just listen, I'll read, or you can follow along in the Pew Bible there. Here's how it goes. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, 
and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to dedicate ourselves to this journey. We want to ask you to give us a greater view of you than we've ever had before. That God, you'd also give us the right view of ourselves and help us to see how you're shaping us and how you're wanting to change and transform us. God, may the things of this world that we get so caught up in, may they just lose their meaning for us. And may we become all about you in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. You can be seated. So Mark begins this gospel with his own personal conviction of what he thinks about Jesus. We just read it. In essence, what he says is, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark believes with all his heart. Then what he does is for the next 16 chapters, he kind of lays out the life and times of Jesus. I'll tell you more about that next weekend. And he kind of pushes us to say, so what do you think? What do you think, junior high? What do you think, senior high? What do you think, young adults? What do you think, those of you who are more mature in age? What do you think? Do you really think that Jesus is the Son of God? And if that's what you think, what difference does it make? And then he, then he uses two quotes from the prophet Isaiah and Malachi and he tells us how it all starts. He says, you know, it was prophesied long ago that, that one would come ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. Now, many of you are good Bible students. Who's that one that comes to prepare the way? What's his name? John the Baptist. You even heard them saying it online. John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist shows up and he's preaching repentance. The kingdom of God is near and that God's Messiah that's going to rescue his people is about to be announced and there's going to be this great and wonderful revolution that's going to take place. And as I was thinking about that, about his announcement that God is going to show up on the scene and God is going to rescue us, I thought to myself, if I had been in the crowd that day listening, what would I have thought? And I know that one of the thoughts that would gone through my mind just because of how I'm wired is, what's he going to look like? Well, what's he, going to, what's he going to be like? And again, that kind of brings us full circle back to our view of who we think Jesus is and, and what he looks like. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but our culture in the last several years has been very politically charged. Any of you noticed that? And you know, unfortunately, it's even made its way into the American evangelical church. And I'm afraid that sometimes it has influenced our view of who Jesus is and what he is like. And of course, our, our culture you know, has all kinds of views on everything from sexuality to how you ought to dress and how you ought to act. And I just, I just wonder if that's also affected the way that we look and we think about Jesus. And maybe our preconceived notions about him are not quite correct. They've been corrupted. They've been distorted. Let's go back to our scene where Jesus is going to be introduced. I just have to think that people were shocked and surprised when the introduction was made. 
And I want you to try your best to put yourself in the scene as well. Because when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the people look and what they see is this 30 or so year old guy who has a very unimpressive pedigree, humanly speaking, he has a poor mother and a poor father. There's rumors about that whole deal. And he comes from someplace like Nazareth. I mean, who's ever heard of Nazareth? And, he, and we don't know who trained him, what rabbi, what school he came out of. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 tells us he was really unimpressive to look at. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't, you know, that kind of person that you just look at and go, wow, I want to be associated with him. I mean, that's our culture today, right? You got to have the right look. You got to carry yourself the right way, right? We're, we're kind of drawn toward the people who look good and have it all together. Jesus, in that sense, would not work well in our culture today. Because Isaiah says there's nothing comely, there's nothing about him that would cause you to want to, you know, say, wow, he looks like a king. He looks like God. He looks like a Messiah. And I just have to think that there are some people who when Jesus was announced as the guy, the son of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, who in modern day terms must have looked at him and thought to themselves, really? I don't know how you say that in Hebrew, but really? That's him? That's the one who's going to rescue us? That's the one that's going to save us. That's the one that's going to lead this revolution. That's the one we're supposed to follow. Really? And as you kind of walk through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, you'll see like in John chapter 6, a whole bunch of people who just finally just, and it says they were his disciples. They no longer kept following him. Because he ended up being such a disappointment. <gasps> Did you know that God sometimes is disappointing. If we're all honest, we've all lived long enough in our lives, we would have to say, yep, had those moments in my life when I've been kind of disappointed with Jesus. But for whatever ways Jesus was not impressive physically, I want to tell you something. When he spoke, he spoke as Aslan. He spoke like a lion. I mean, from the get-go, the first thing he says to us, and by the way, let me just, I want to make sure we're clear on this because we have a tendency, I think, to look at the Bible, look at God's word as, as kind of from the outside looking in. And, and we treat it like a, a book of history and we treat it like it happened long ago and that it really doesn't have relevance to us and we got to kind of figure out how to apply it to our lives today. You, please don't do that. You got to look at it as a window into your life. You got to look at it as God speaking to you and to me. That's how we know that it's divine because it's going to speak to us. So don't think about this as, as so much as what it meant to them. I want you to think about what does this mean to you and me? And his message from, from out of the gate to us is, I want you to do three things. Repent, believe, and follow. Say that with me. Repent, believe, and follow. So are you ready? Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to believe? Are you ready to follow? And before you just go, yeah, of course I am. So I'm here. I already have made that commitment. But did you read the fine print when you did? How many of you have a tendency not to read the fine print when it's like 30 pages long, right? 
This sign the dumb thing. Man, you got to read the fine print when it comes to following Jesus. Let me show you the five, fine print of his call on our lives. Here's, here's the first thing you got to realize. That Jesus' call on your life, now I'm talking about you, and, I'm, and I'm, now I'm pointing this at me. And since we're all together, we form the church. It's not just us individually, but us collectively. Jesus' call on your life and his church is what? What's that word? Is unique. It's unlike any other religion, any other belief. And the word that sums it up, its uniqueness, is actually a Greek word in the text. And it's this word called euagelion. Let's say it together. Ready? Euagelion. That was beautiful. One more time. Euagelion. Yes, online even said it. Euagelion. And what does euagelion mean? It's an interesting word. It actually has two meanings. On the one hand, euagelion can refer to a messenger... And then on the other hand, it could be used to refer to a message. So what Jesus is saying to us is, I want you to follow me, and I want you to become a messenger with a message. Well, we know what the message is. The message is what Jesus calls good news. And he wants us to go, and he wants us to be proclaimers of this good news. In fact, it has to become our number one job. It has to become our number one mission above our career and everything else that we do. He leaves us here, all of us here, young and old alike, with one primary mission. We are to go through our lives being messengers of this good news. Now, euagelion meant something very different in its day than it does in our modern idea of being a messenger today. And here's what I mean by that. In its day, it was a message that was meant to be life-changing. Not just any old message. It was life-changing. It describes something that's happened that, that is astounding, that is life-changing. For instance, archaeologists have found a 9th century B.C. inscription that is entitled the Euagelion of Caesar Augustus. And it actually says in the inscription that Caesar is the Savior who has come to put the world in order. Isn't that interesting? You know, the world is always looking for a Savior. I don't care if you're in fifth grade, sixth grade, junior high, high school, college, young adult, I don't care where you are in the spectrum of life. All of us, whether we realize that, all of us are looking for a savior. It is human nature. We want somebody to rescue us. When armies go out and fight their battles, oftentimes what would happen after the battle was won between two armies, the victorious army would send messengers, euagelions out with euagelion, good news to the realms, villages, and towns and cities. Our, our army is won. Our king has been victorious, which meant so much to the people back then because if your king loses, that means the enemy's going to come, the enemy's going to kidnap your children, rape your women, kill the men, and burn down your town. Oh, man, it was good news. That is so different from what other religions offer. You know, other religions offer us good advice. There's a lot of bad advice out there. There's a lot of good advice out there. And, and all that good advice is meant to do is to make your life better. God does not offer us good advice. He doesn't tell us what we must do in order to be better. 
What he does in his good news is he tells us what's been done for us to change our past and to give us a new past and a new present and a new future. That is very different. Imagine you've been battling cancer, and some of you, this is nothing for you to imagine. It's, it's what you have experienced or are experiencing. But imagine you're battling cancer, and you've been taking chemo, and you've been, you maybe had surgery, and you've been on all kinds of medication, and then you had a whole bunch of tests that have been run on you, you know, a year later or whatever, and you walk into the office, and you're as nervous as can be. What is my situation? And the doctor walks in, and she smiles at you, and she says, I have such great news for you. The good news is your cancer is gone. There's no sign of it in your body. At that moment, you are absolutely filled with joy. You are relieved. This is life-changing news. It's like I have a new past, a new present, a new future. That cancer is gone. Or imagine you're in a courtroom. You've been accused of a crime. There's been a trial. At the end of the trial, the judge tells you to stand the judge announces to you in the whole courtroom, your family and friends, that the jury has weighed it all out and has come to the conclusion that you are not guilty. That is life-changing. The record is now cleaned up. It's no longer an offense that you've committed. You have a new past, a new present, and a new future. It doesn't get better than that, does it? And that's what the good news does. The good news tells us that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has given us a new past because our sins are wiped away. Our record is made clean. Actually, Jesus takes our old past and gives us his past, which is perfect. He gives us a new present. He gives us a new future. He gives us amazing hope. And then Jesus says, listen, my kingdom has come near. What does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom has come near in that passage? It's right there. Look at it. My kingdom has come near. Well, to understand that, you got to go back to the book of Genesis. And you got to ask yourself, was there ever a time when God's kingdom was there and it was good and everything was great? And you're like, yes, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It was an awesome scene in the garden. God is there with Adam and Eve. It's perfect. There's no mosquitoes. No teams lose. Everybody wins. It was perfect. There's no sin. There's no guilt. There's no shame. It was, one, it was an idyllic environment. It was awesome. It was awesome. Why? Because it was God's kingdom. He was ruling. There was no interference. And then sin crept into the garden and crept into the soul of Adam and Eve, and they rebelled against God. And it's been a mess ever since. And the Bible tells us at the very end, when Christ returns, he'll reestablish his kingdom like it was in Genesis, new heavens, new earth. But in between time, we have to deal with the mess that we have made. And Tim Keller, trying to summarize the mess we've made, says it can all be encapsulated in this phrase, self-absorption. It's an ugly phrase. Say it with me, self-absorption. So I thought, well, rather than tell you what I think it means, let me go to the dictionary, and here's what it means. Listen excessively preoccupied with your own thoughts, feelings, and concerns. How many of you know of a self-absorbed person? Let me see your hands. Yes, we all do, don't we? Every time we look in the mirror, we meet them. 
We're all tremendously preoccupied with our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own concerns. And Keller goes on, he says, it's what's wrong with the world. It is the cause of all the misery in this world of racism, of violence, of death, of war, of crime, of abuse, of hatred, of jealousies. And all the, all the miserable things that you can think of are all because of self-absorption, because it's all about me. It is what causes the breakdown in every relationship. Self-absorption ruined the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. And guess what? It ruins the relationships we have with each other. In our marriages, when we have difficulties and challenges, where does it come from? Self-absorption. When you students have problems with your parents, where does it come from? Their self-absorption. <laughs> and yours. When we have problems with our peers at school, self-absorption. When there's issues in the church, self-absorption. And Jesus came to relieve us of that, to get us out of that. Because listen, we're all looking for a savior. We're all looking for a savior. That's what this next election year is all about. We're gonna elect somebody that we think will save us, that will save the republic, that will, that will make things better for us. And what we've discovered is that human saviors always fail. Why? Because they're all self-absorbed. The only hero that can rescue us is Jesus. Do you believe that? Yes. I really want you to think about that. If you honestly, truly believe it. Because if you do, it means it means you're going to follow him. And that takes us to the second part of the fine print. Jesus' call on your life and his church is what? What's that word? Radical. radical. How many of you want to be radical? I do, right? What does it mean to be radical? What, what are we talking about here? In what way is Jesus' call radical? Well, Jesus says there are two things you have to do, okay? Now, please don't read this as that's what he said to them back at that time. This is what Jesus is saying to you and me right now. Like he's putting this in front of us right now. We say we're going to follow the real Jesus. This is what he's saying to me. He's saying, leave and follow. Leave and follow. Now, for the people living back then, when he said leave, and you take the context of Mark, when in essence what he's saying is leave your family behind, which for them was, was like Betrayal. Because in that culture, and still in some Middle Eastern cultures, you don't leave family. You have to have permission from your father to leave. You're obligated to stay and take care of family. And if you have to go, take them with you. Like, we don't get that in our Western culture. I left home at 17 and never looked back except for some visits. It was all about get out of the home and go make a life for yourself a career, a job, be successful. That is the Western, that is the American way. So, so what would make you and me uncomfortable is if Jesus said, and he does say, leave your career, leave your materialism, leave your possessions and come follow me. How many of us, I include myself, would be a little uncomfortable with that today? All of us would. That's why I said it's a radical call. Are you willing? That's the question. Are you willing to leave? Are you willing to follow? Look what Jesus said, and Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 14. He says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, how many of us want to be his disciple? Hopefully a lot of us do. 
You must. He didn't say, well, think about this. It's an option. He said, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father, your mother, wife and children, brother and sister. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Those are pretty strong words. That's why I told you there are going to be some preconceived notions we have about Jesus that need to be changed. We're going to stop romanticizing Jesus as so many of our songs do these days and so many preachers do these days. Some of the things that Jesus say, says are hard to take. He says, if you don't lead, you cannot. If you don't hate in comparison, you cannot. Well, what does that mean? One of my favorite people you know is Tim Keller. In commenting on this passage, he says, Jesus wants you and me to follow him so fully, so intensely, so surprisingly, so comprehensively, so emotionally that all other actions in your life look like hate in comparison. Man, you got to think about that one, right? Because the question is, as, as people look at my life and how I behave and think and talk and speak, would it seem like them that I hate a lot of the things the world values in comparison to how I talk and feel about Jesus? Whew, that's a hard one. I don't know what they would think of me. You see, what Jesus is driving at here is he refuses to be used by people. Jesus refuses to be used by politicians, for instance, who want to take him or his church or his word and use it, play with it in order to get votes to move ahead. Jesus refuses to be used by celebrities, or let's say celebrity preachers and, and leaders of the church who want to use him and his word to advance their vision and their idea of what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus refuses to allow the culture to use him, to transform him and change him in order to accomplish its agenda. Jesus won't be used by anybody. He is not our means to an end. And anytime somebody tries to use him, whether it's a preacher or a politician or anybody else, it always ends badly for them. It always does. History is proof of it. And the question I have to ask myself every day, and you have to ask yourself every day, is are you trying to use him or are you letting him use you? Jesus never said, come unto me and I will make you powerful. He never said, come unto me and I'll make you famous. He never said, come unto me and I'll give you a lot of likes on your Facebook page. He never said, come unto me and you'll be the most popular student in your school. He never said that. He never said that. He didn't say, come unto me and I'll make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. He said, just come unto me and be satisfied with me. Make your satisfaction the fact that I am the source and breath of your life. I have this weird concept. I can't draw it. I just don't have the ability to. If I could, lay it flat. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I write a little bit about this in my book, but I, I think about the O and God. I, I think about this like this well, this, this well. If I could make it come out this way, I would. But I think about all of life springing out of God. All of life. All of life springs out of God. 
what I, what I sense God doing is saying, come back to your origin. Come back to your source. It's almost like he's saying, come and sit here in me and breathe me. This is enough. And what we've done is we're out here trying to find our source in all these wrong places. If you took a picture of this and put it online, just make sure you acknowledge the source of this art. Just kidding. <laughs> Do you get what I'm trying to say, though? You get the, the idea? He says, just be, just be satisfied with me. And I know someone might be thinking, man, that sounds fanatical. It's not. It's radical, but it's not fanatical. Let me tell you the difference between being a fanatic and a radical. Fanatics are ignorance, are ignoramuses. Fanatics um, are all about power. Fanatics are all about superiority, being better. If you take a fanatic and you apply it to, let's say, spiritual things, your Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes in the Bible, they were fanatics. Do you know why they were fanatics? Listen very carefully. They're fanatics because they didn't go all the way through with Jesus. They didn't go all the way through with God. They stopped at the law. And they thought, you know, we can use the law as a means for superiority over others. We can use the law as a means of our own salvation. We'll be righteous in and of ourselves. We only need a Messiah to get rid of our enemies, to oppress our oppressors. But, but the law will be our savior because that, that leaves us in control. That's called self-absorption. And it's in all of us. That, that tendency is in all of us. I was sitting in this sanctuary alone early this week. Sometimes I just like to come in and pray. And I was talking to God, and I was actually looking up that way. I don't know why these things stick in my mind like that. And I, and I, and I remember God just reminding me how often I try to prove my spirituality by, by my legalisms, by the things I do and the things I don't do in order to feel better about myself. That's what a fanatic does. And God reminded me, my, my works, your works is like filthy rags. I can't do anything for myself. It's what he's been done for me. It's what he's done for me. See, a radical is somebody who goes all the way in with God, all the way through. Remember when Jesus says, my kingdom has come near? What did he mean by that when he said, my kingdom has come near? What is his kingdom? His kingdom is him. When he said, my kingdom has come near, what he's saying is, I've come near. Do you realize that you and I have been called by Jesus to join him in bringing his kingdom near to this world around us, near at school, near at work, near our neighborhood? How do we bring the kingdom near? It's not so much by what we say, though that's important. It's not so much with what we do, though that's important. It's by who we are. When we show up like Jesus, what do we look like when we show up like Jesus? And I'm going to do this very quickly because we're going to unpack this later on in our series. But to show up like Jesus in the culture is to show up with love and compassion, humility and service, forgiveness and grace, peace and nonviolence, justice and concern for the marginalized, faith and trust, generosity and sharing our life, truth and integrity, joy and hope, prayer and spiritual discipline. When you live that way, when a church together lives that way, listen, it's not fanatical, it is radical. And it, it's attractive to people. And I'm just sorry, 
to say that the American church has not looked like this in a long time. We've become politicized, bitter, hateful, angry, jealous, complaining, griping, accusatory. We're not Jesus in the flesh. We're fanatics pushing our own agenda and legalisms and guilt and all kinds of other things that is not what Jesus brought to the table. Are you willing to follow him? Last but not least, Jesus' call in your life and his church is a process of maturity. I'm so thankful for this. God, you know, you know that saying, don't get upset with me, God isn't finished yet. It's so very true. Jesus started a revolution in his disciples that lasted their whole lifetime. He spent three and a half years with them, and sometimes they did really well, and sometimes they struggled. But he kept hanging on with them. He kept mentoring them. And then when he left, he gave them the Holy Spirit to continue to transform and change them. The same thing is true in your life and my life. God knows we're not perfect. We won't be perfect till we stand in his presence. But from now until then, he's at work in our lives, growing us, challenging us, changing us, patiently waiting with us, trying to move us forward with him. So don't give up. Jesus said, and you will become, become as a process, fishers of men. But what is this fishers of men thing? Well, think about fishing for fish. You do that in the water, right? In the Bible, symbolically speaking, water usually symbolizes darkness, depth, confusion, chaos, and evil. The ancients were afraid of large bodies of water like the Mediterranean or the Sea of Galilee. It was scary to them. It was dark, it was mysterious, it was chaos, it was evil. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, above your job, your profession, your athletics, your abilities, your skills, your material things, above all of that, the most important thing you will ever do in this life is join me, Jesus is saying, in drawing people, that's the fishermen, drawing people out of that darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of my light and my grace. Can you think of a better job than that? Can you think of doing anything more important than getting people out of the darkness and bringing them into the light? I cannot. This whole idea of following Jesus seems kind of scary, intimidating. It is. It is. But if you're willing to take the journey, it'll be the best experience of your life. Some of you may be wondering, can he really transform lives? Can Jesus honestly transform lives? Can he radically change somebody? And what I want to do is I want to share with you some stories of change that are contemporary stories. And this story is about a man who I'm going to call Sam. I can't give you his real name. I don't want to put his life in danger. But he's one of the people that you have had a profound effect on because of our desire to plant 30,000 churches in the next 10 years in parts of the world where less than 1% of people know Jesus. Sam is what I'll call him, and I just got this story from one of our partners there. Sam was part of a radical militant group that was fighting against the national government to free their state up as being independent. It's a losing battle, by the way. But he's like, he's like, you know, he's like a, a militant. He's, he's in, in guerrilla warfare, so to speak. 
And he and those that he serves with have to hide constantly in the jungle. And in order for them to survive, they raid villages. So one night when they went into a certain village to extort money and food from the people, an old man in that village came up and he stuck a piece of paper in Sam's pocket and then walked away. Several days later, Sam was uh, at a stream in the jungle and he's washing out his filthy clothes. And as he's, you know, checking the pockets, he pulled out that piece of paper. And it was actually a piece of Mark's gospel that we're studying. And the passage that he read was Jesus saying, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And he could not get that out of his head. It was like there day and night. And he began to question himself, what if we do free up our state, but I die and I lose my life in the process? Where will I go? What will happen to me? What value is there in my life? What is my life worth anyway? And he thought to himself, I got to get back to that village and find out from that old man what, what this is all about. Two weeks later, the commander said to his commandos, we're going back to that village to get more food and money. He was excited to go. He went into that village and he found where that old man lived and he walked into that house that night and there was the old man with his family and they were scared to death because he had a gun with him. They thought their lives were going to end. He said, please don't be afraid. I've not come here to kill you. But you put this message in my pocket, and I've been thinking about it ever since. What does this mean? What can I do? And that old man who happened to be a pastor shared with him the whole gospel good news story. And Sam said, is it possible that God can forgive somebody like me for all the horrible things that I have done? And the old pastor said, yes, God can do that. And he prayed with Sam to receive Christ. They told Sam, you're going to have to go back to your camp. But from now on, when you pray, you pray in the name of Jesus. And Sam went back to that camp with those militant guerrillas. And the question that came into his mind is, what are they going to do when they find out that I have become a Christian? I'll tell you next weekend. Kyle.